Welcome to Volume 1 of this Uvula Audio presentation of The Rocket's Shadow, a Rick Brandt adventure by John Blaine. Your narrator is Jim Campanella. All Uvula Audio books are in the public domain. Regular listeners to this podcast may remember that there is some controversy as to who exactly John Blaine is. According to pulp historian Will Murray, when the market for pulps dried up in the late 1940s, Lester Dent turned to writing juvenile stories under the name John Blaine. He started writing a series of books about an adventurous boy by the name of Rick Brandt and his East Indian companion Chada. Between 1947 and 1958, Dent wrote the Rick Brandt books. For those of you who were kids in the 1960s, or more recently fans of the Venture Brothers, Johnny Quest was based on the Rick Brandt stories. Well, Will Murray now says that he is not so sure that what he originally suggested a few years ago is the case, and that it is likely that Hal Goodwin of Divers Down and Rip Foster fame actually originated the series. Some other commentators and fans of Goodwin have suggested that Goodwin, a fan of Dent, purposely copied his style in the first books of the series, hence making it look much more like Dent wrote them. Since the true story appears lost in the mists of literary time in the late 1940s, we may never know who the actual author may be. But in the end, it doesn't matter who wrote them, Dent, Goodwin, or Edgar Rice Burroughs, because these are still ripping yarns for any kid or grown-up to hear, and they are still entertaining even 60 years after their inception. In the series, teenager Rick Brandt and his ex-Marine pal Don Scott, the proto-race Bannon, live on Spindrift Island off the coast of New Jersey, where Rick's father, Hartson Brandt, heads the scientists of the Spindrift Foundation. In this first book, The Rocket Shadow, Rick Brandt first meets his new friend Don Scott and investigates the apparent sabotage of the Spindrift Foundation's new experimental rocket. I won't say much more than that about the plot itself, but remember what the setting of these stories is. The beginning of the Cold War, starting in about 1948, and the beginning of serious experimentation in the U.S. with rockets. And now, The Rocket's Shadow. Chapter 1. The Unforeseen. Rick Brandt, being tall for his age, had no trouble making the final connections on his latest invention. He screwed the bell on solidly, then stepped back to view his handiwork. The doorbell was now in an unusual position. Instead of being at waist level, it had been moved to the inside of the doorframe and placed up high. It looked fine. A stranger might have to hunt a little before he saw the push button, but he'd find it all right. Rick went inside and threw the switch that would send electricity into the gadget, and then went to collect the family. Mrs. Brandt was in the kitchen, supervising supper preparations for the family and for the scientists who made their home on Spindrift Island. Rick sampled the cake frosting in a nearby bowl and invited, Come out to the porch for a minute, Mom. There's something I want to show you. Mrs. Brandt looked up from the roast she was seasoning, a twinkle in her eye. What is it now, Rick? Another invention? Wait and see, he said mysteriously. I'll go get Dad and Barbie. He hurried into the big front room that Hartson Brandt used as an office. It was filled with books written in several languages all of them on scientific subjects. One wall was covered with framed degrees, stating that Hartson William Brandt was an engineer, a master of arts, a member of 
numerous scientific societies, and a fellow of the American Institute of Atomic Scientists. In the center of the room was a massive desk, littered now with blueprints, wiring diagrams, and stacks of paper that were covered with obscure mathematical figures. Hartson Brandt, clad in an unprofessor-like slack suit and with his brown hair must, was scowling over an intricate equation. Rick waited until his father looked up, not wanting to break into his train of thought. In many ways, Rick Brandt was a younger edition of his famous father. Both were slender, with brown hair and eyes, and Rick had inherited his father's dislike of dressing up. He was usually dressed in a pair of worn slacks and a sweater with moccasins for footgear. What is it, son? Hartson Brandt asked finally. I have something to show you if you're not too busy, Dad. Hartson Brandt rose, pushing back his chair with relief. Just for a minute, he agreed. It will give me a chance to rest before I go back to this confounded equation. Is it tough? Rick asked sympathetically. Worse than that, it's the blast reaction equation for the rocket. I'm rechecking Zircon's figures. Well, what is it this time? A new electric shoe polisher? Rick's shoe polisher was a standing joke in the family. It had worked all right, but too well. The clamp that held the shoe in place while the automatic brush went over it had stuck firmly, but by the time the power could be cut off, most of the leather had been worn down from the shoe he had borrowed for the demonstration. This one works, he promised. It's on the front porch. I'll get Barbie, then we'll try it. He went to the foot of the stairs and yelled, Hey, brat, come on down. His mother appeared from the kitchen. Isn't Barbie at the telephone switchboard? She never is, Rick said. A fine telephone operator she is. He grinned as a slender, blonde girl, a year younger than he, came down the stairs. She walked with a conscious effort at gracefulness, her head held high and her face set in a frozen expression that seemed to indicate worldly boredom. Did someone call me? She asked languidly. Today she's being Ethel Barrymore, Rick told his smiling parents. I recognize the pose. Come on, brat, I have something to show you. The pose was dropped instantly, and Barbara Brandt came down the remaining stairs in a rush. Is it a new invention, Rick? The Brandt Identification Panel, he replied. Wait till you see it. Lead us to it, Rick, Hartson Brandt said dryly. Rick led the way to the front porch, closing the door behind him. Mrs. Brandt looked closely at the door. Rick, what on earth? Watch, he said. Barbie, ring the doorbell. The girl's hand reached out toward the spot where the button had been, but stopped short. It's gone, she exclaimed. Rick pointed to the new location high in the doorframe. There it is. Mr. and Mrs. Brandt exchanged glances. Barbie looked doubtful, but by standing on tiptoe, she could just reach it. As her finger touched the button, there was a sharp crash and a panel about six inches square swung out of the door. She jumped back with a little squeal of fright. The shaggy little dog that had joined them and was watching curiously let out a surprised yelp. Barbie bent down swiftly. Did I step on you, Diz? Dismal, pleased with the attention, promptly rolled over and played dead, all four legs in the air. See? Rick said, grinning. Even Diz is impressed. It's wonderful, Mrs. Brandt said doubtfully. What is it? Well, suppose you're upstairs and somebody comes to the door and rings the bell. 
The panel drops out. Rick opened the door and pointed to a mirror. The reflection is picked up. There's another mirror on the landing and still another one at the head of the stairs. It's like a periscope. You can see who's at the door without coming down. His mother was puzzled. His father amused. And Barbie looked pleased. What a wonderful idea, she exclaimed. She ran up the stairs and in a moment came down excitedly. I can see all of you. It's perfect, Rick. Mrs. Brandt shook her head. But honey, wouldn't it be much easier just to look out the window? Hartz and Brandt spoke up. We mustn't discourage him, dear. This thing has definite possibilities, especially the new bell location. Just think, if a midget brush salesman comes, he won't be able to reach it. Rick looked sharply at his dad. It was hard to tell when the scientist, usually serious, was joking. Then he saw the suspicious twinkle in Mr. Brandt's eyes. Aw, Dad, that isn't the idea at all. I'm not poking fun at your invention, Hartson Brandt assured him. It's very fine, or it would be if we ever had strangers calling at the house. Oh, I didn't think of that, Rick answered abashed. It was true. Strangers never rang the doorbell. That was because the location of the big Brandt house on Spindrift Island made it almost impossible for casual visitors to drop in. They had to be brought in by boat from the town of Whiteside on the mainland. Barbie came back downstairs and hurried to her brother's defense. Well, I think it's wonderful. Why, Rick is just like, like Edison or something. I've never doubted it, Hartson Brandt assured her with a smile. Incidentally, this clears up a mystery. I've wondered what happened to that spare photoelectric cell we had in the lab. I meant to tell you I borrowed it, Dad, Rick confessed. Want to see how the panel works? He explained it with a certain pride. The photoelectric cell was set just below the doorbell. When the button was pushed, it turned on a small light that operated the cell, which in turn released the catch that held the door panel in place. It's very ingenious, Mrs. Brandt said. Thank you for showing me, Rick. Now you'll have to excuse me or I won't have supper ready on time. As Mrs. Brandt went into the house, she looked at the hole in the door panel, but she didn't say anything. What's for supper, Mom? Barbie called after her. From inside came a sudden loud buzzing. The switchboard! Barbie exclaimed and hurried off. She had volunteered to handle the island switchboard, but after a week of sitting at the board, she had persuaded Rick to install a buzzer that could be heard all over the house. Now it was a usual sight to see her running for the board from some remote part of the house. Rick and his father were left alone. Even Dismal had gone, sniffing his excitement at the scent of the roast. I guess it isn't very practical, Dad, but I had fun figuring it out, Rick said. That's the idea, son. A scientist has to be practical, but only up to a point. You'll probably work out dozens of ideas before you find a useful one. And even the biggest thing you ever do might not seem practical to some people. Like the rocket, Dad? That's right. Sending a rocket to the moon probably seems like an impractical stunt to most people. Rick walked with his father back to the office. Maybe they'll change their minds when they see what happens. It won't be long now. A week should do it, always burying the unforeseen. We're right on schedule in spite of the trouble we've had. As they crossed into the big office, Rick's thoughts were on his family. They were swell. No matter how silly his tinkering seemed, 
They were always enthusiastic and considerate. Even his mother had said nothing about the hole he had cut in the front door. And his father, in spite of the many things on his mind, had taken the trouble to look and comment. The telephone jangled sharply, and Hartson Brandt picked it up. Yes. Father saw his father's face tighten as he replaced the receiver and ran for the door. What is it, Dad? The unforeseen, his father answered grimly. The control panel at the lab just blew out. Chapter 2. The Men in the Gray Sedan Rick hurried after his father through the apple orchard, which separated the stone laboratory buildings from the house. What did they say, Dad? Weiss didn't give any details. He just said the panel had blown and to hurry over, Mr. Brent replied. In a moment, they were through the orchard and crossing the lawn in front of the long, low stone building. As they entered the main door, a small, stoop-shouldered man hurried to meet them, rubbing his hands nervously. This was Dr. Julius Weiss, whose undistinguished appearance hid one of the keenest scientific minds in the country. It was the relay, Weiss announced. It failed to throw out, and the overload burnt out everything on the board. Rick followed into the inner workroom where the scientists had been working on the rocket control panel. An electrical relay, he knew, served the same purpose as a fuse. But where a fuse would blow out, the relay would just open the circuit. Only the relay hadn't worked. In the workroom, two men looked up from their inspection of a blackened mass of glass and wiring. The air was heavy with the odor of burnt insulation. The two men were about the same height, but there the similarity ended. Hobart Zircon, famed electronic scientist, was a huge barrel of a man, bearded of face and bushy of hair. His voice rolled out of his massive chest with the emphasis of a bass drum. He was big, but not fat. His strength was legendary. John Stringfellow fitted his name. He was lean to the point of gauntness, precise of speech and neat of dress. Even the shapeless laboratory coat he wore seemed to have been tailored for him. The gray eyes set in his thin face were keen and perceptive. He was a wizard at mathematics and a skilled radio technician. Take a look at this mess, Hartson. Hobart Zircon boomed. He indicated the burnt panel. Hartson probed into the wreckage with skilled fingers. What happened? he asked. We were making a routine test, John Stringfellow explained. Julius threw the switch and the panel burnt out before we could get to it. If the relay had thrown out when the power overload hit, this wouldn't have happened. Rick spoke up, framing his question out of the suspicions that leapt into his mind. What caused the overload? He knew the electric current generated at the powerhouse next to the lab was a constant 440 volts. It must have risen to a terrific voltage to do so much damage. I wish we knew, Stringfellow told him. I went out and checked the generators as soon as it happened. They registered normally. Possibly a power surge on the line from the mainland? Vice put in. But there wouldn't be a power surge unless there was a storm, would there? Rick asked. That's beside the point, Hartson Brandt said. Why didn't the relay throw out? Well, we'll soon see, Stringfellow assured him. He was already at work disconnecting the mechanism. Rick watched as the technician placed the relay on the bench and began tearing it down. 
The scientists had gathered around and were inspecting each part curiously as it was removed. Hobart Zircon's sausage-like fingers swooped down suddenly on a silvery piece of metal. He held it up triumphantly. Here it is, he exclaimed. Melted. Defective manufacturing. That's what it was. He passed the bit of metal around and the scientist nodded in agreement. But why didn't it burn out before? Rick put in hesitantly. Questions, Zircon bellowed. Always questions from this kid. Why should it burn out before? Under a normal electrical load it would operate. Under an overload, the flaw gives way and it melts. What else? I guess you're right, Rick agreed grudgingly. But he couldn't help thinking that this accident followed closely the pattern of similar mishaps that had taken place during the work on the experiment. The blame had always fallen on defective parts. None of the accidents had been serious, but they had all resulted in lost time. And time was important, now that the experiment was almost at an end. John, take a look in the stockroom, if you please, Hartson Brandt said. See if we have a replacement to rebuild this panel. Stringfellow nodded and hurried to the small room where extra parts were kept. In a moment, he was back. We have everything, he announced, except that triode rectifier tube. I can send Rick in by plane for that, Hartson Brandt said. Maybe we can save him a trip, Stringfellow replied thoughtfully. I just possibly may have a triode rectifier in my office. Would you look and see, please, John? The tall scientist hurried off toward his office, and Mr. Brandt turned back to the group around the panel. We'll have to work this evening to make up for lost time, he told them. Hobart, will you tear down the panel? Julius, I think we'll want extra relays in the circuit from the powerhouse in case there's another surge in the main line. He turned to Rick. I hope John can save you that trip in, son. These time losses are becoming serious. He looked down the hall towards Stringfellow's office as he spoke, but there was no sign of the thin scientist. Rick bent low to watch Zircon tear down the panel. As the minutes ticked away, his father paced the floor impatiently. It was a full twenty minutes before Stringfellow returned. He walked into the room, shaking his head. I was sure I had a tube in my office, but I guess I was mistaken. Uh, well, Rick will just have to make that trip in after all. Hartson Brandt gave a shrug of disappointment. Make it as fast as you can, will you, Rick? He said, reaching for his wallet. He peeled off a few bills and handed them to his son, and then scribbled the name and the manufacturer's number of the triode tube on a scrap of paper. It's a standard type of tube. Any of the supply houses nearby should have them in stock. Better pick up three or four. We want a good supply on hand just in case. Okay, Dad, I should be back by supper time. Be careful, his father admonished, but don't waste time. We'll need that tube tonight. Rick ran through the orchard to the house and picked up his flight jacket. Then telling his mother that he was going on an errand, he hurried to the seaward side of the island. There on the grassy strip that flanked the orchard sat his pride and joy, a trim, yellow Piper Cub airplane. He checked it over carefully, tested the controls, and took a look at the fuel stick. Then, after pulling the little propeller through to prime the cylinders, he reached into the cabin to advance the throttle and turn on the switch. He snapped the propeller down, and thanks to the care he lavished on it daily, 
the little engine roared into life at once. While the engine warmed, he untied the ropes that protected the plane from sudden winds and kicked the chocks from under the wheels. Then he climbed into the cabin, and with a glance at the homemade windsock dangling from one of the orchard trees, he rolled down the grassy strip and was airborne. Spindrift Island fell below as he climbed, heading toward the New Jersey shore. The island was roughly oval, except for a hook-shaped cove where two fast motorboats rested against the pier. On the seaward side, on opposite corners, were the house and laboratory, the orchard between them. On the south side of the island, about halfway between the sea and the Jersey shore, was a field surrounded by heavy woods, except where it fronted on the water. Rick's eyes grew speculative as he looked down at Pirate's Field, so named because island legend had it that the woman pirate Anne Bonny had once picnicked there with her gang of cutthroats. In the center of the field was a tall, canvas-covered structure from which the moon rocket would be launched. Already the base was in place. In a few days, if all went well, the rocket would speed moonward. A short distance up the coast, as he turned toward the town of Whiteside, he noticed that his oil pressure gauge was falling off. It had been acting up owing to some defect in the instrument itself. He was sure he had pressure enough, but there was no use taking a chance. He banked tightly toward the airfield on the edge of town. In a few moments, he was setting the cub down on the gravel strip, taxiing to a stop in front of the hangar. Gus, manager of the Whiteside Airport, gasoline attendant, mechanic, doctor, and philosopher, came out to meet him, rubbing greasy hands on the thighs of his dungarees. An assistant, whom Rick had only seen a few times, was with him. Gus introduced him as Mac and then asked, What's up, Rick? The oil pressure gauge again. I'm afraid to trust it. Gus turned to Mac. Take a look in that shipment of parts that came in this morning. See if there's a new gauge. I ordered one a week ago. Mac went into the hangar and came out in a moment with a cardboard box. Is this the one? That's it, Gus said. It'll only take a little while to install, Rick. You want me to do it now? Rick hesitated. I have to go to Newark on an errand. Can I borrow your car? Sure, Gus agreed. Take it. Drive fast. Maybe hit a tree so I can collect on the insurance. I need a new one. Mac, the new attendant, laughed. Get someone else to have your accidents, Rick grinned. I'm a safe and sane driver. I seen you drive. You take corners like you were banking the cub. Go on, Sonny. We'll have the gauge in there by the time you get back. Rick climbed into the battered jalopy that stood before the hangar. Thanks, Grandpa, he mocked. Gus was only about three years older than Rick. He stepped on the starter and the motor groaned protestingly into life. The car rolled out onto the highway and he headed for the manufacturing area on the outskirts of Newark. He knew just where to go for the tube. He had been on many similar errands for the scientists before. He left Whiteside behind, thinking that Gus evidently put in more time on the jalopy than he did on his planes. It rattled and complained, but there was surprising power under its battered hood. He stepped on the gas and the old car leapt ahead. But as he picked up speed, a tire blew out with a loud report followed by a bumping and crunching as the jalopy rolled along on its rim. Rick pulled up and got out, muttering to himself. Fortunately, there was a spare. 
There was also a jack that didn't work until he had fussed with it for about 15 minutes. But at last the tire was changed and he rolled on his way again. With the flat, he estimated the trip to Newark would take more than an hour. The Farnham Radio and Television Supply Company was his first stop. The clerk looked at the slip of paper Rick presented to him and said, You're about half an hour too late, son. We just sold out all we had, six of them. Don't expect any more until sometime next week. Rick thanked him and drove to another supply house. He handed the specifications to the girl at the desk. Better give me three of them. She shook her head. Sorry, we only had three on hand, and a man bought those about 15 minutes ago. Rick was disturbed as he drove through traffic to another company. The errand wasn't turning out to be as simple as he'd thought. When he went into the third office, he asked, Do you have any of these? Did have, the man at the supply desk said, but we sold them out not more than a quarter of an hour ago. Man came in and asked for all we had. Rick went out thoughtfully. There was no reason why there should be such an unprecedented demand for that particular tube. With a sudden decision, he swung the car in the direction of the Cotter Electronics Supply Company on the far side of Newark. Cotter was one of the biggest supply houses. If anybody had the tubes, they certainly would. He drove up in front of the brick building and parked behind a gray sedan of expensive make. As he got out and walked to the front door, two men in the sedan watched him suspiciously. Strange-looking men to find in front of an electronic supply house, Rick thought. They looked like prize fighters or wrestlers. As he went into the front office, a man brushed by. Rick caught a quick glimpse of a short, neat beard and a pair of dark glasses. The man carried a square package under his arm. Rick greeted the clerk cordially. How's business, Dick? Okay. What's new on Spindrift Island? Not much. You got any of these? He handed the clerk the specification slip. Well, I'll be doggone, the clerk exclaimed. Why all the sudden interest in these things? What sudden interest? Rick asked quickly. I had a dozen in stock, the clerk said. We'd had them for quite a while. There wasn't much demand. And then this guy just comes in and buys out the whole stock. And you come along and want the same thing. What guy? Rick asked sharply. Well, tall guy with a beard. You must have passed him on the way in. I did, Rick exclaimed. Excuse me. He was out the door before the clerk could say another word. The gray sedan was just vanishing around the corner. He jumped into the jalopy and kicked it into action. Something was wrong here. Coincidence was all right, but when the sudden demand for a certain tube stretched all over Newark and ended up with a bearded man who bought out the entire stock of tubes, well, that was just too much. He had seen instantly that the bearded man wasn't in sight. He couldn't have walked to the corner in that time. Rick decided he must be in the gray sedan. Hurling the jalopy around the corner, he caught a glimpse of the car as it turned into another street farther up. Rick had no definite plan of action. His following the sedan was only an impulse. But a hunch told him that the bearded man who had bought up all the tubes was in that car. He was gaining on the gray sedan now. He slowed down, content to keep it in sight. The gray sedan led him to the outskirts of work. When it turned in the direction of Whiteside, Speeding up as it hit the open highway, Rick crouched over the wheel and gave the battered airport car all the gas it would take. 
There was enough speed in the ancient motor to keep the sedan in sight. The car ahead slowed suddenly, and Rick had to jam on the brakes to keep from overhauling it. He saw a face pressed to the rear window and knew he had been seen. The men in the sedan would recognize the jalopy as the one that had been parked in front of Cotter's. Suddenly, he felt apprehensive. The men hadn't looked like the kind who would take kindly to being trailed. The car swept into Whiteside, and Rick closed in to keep from losing the sedan in traffic. The gray car spun into a side street, catching him unaware. He turned the jalopy after it, just in time to see the gray sedan sweep into a narrow alley. Rick jammed on the brakes and went after it at a safer speed, driving the old car cautiously through stacks of crates, garbage cans, and the like. The sedan shot out the far end and turned left. He held to the wheel grimly and followed, realizing that they were trying to shake him. That knowledge only increased his determination. If the men in the sedan were trying to lose him, they must have something to hide. In the center of Whiteside, the fleeing sedan came to a red light and went right through it without slowing down. Rick gritted his teeth and jabbed down on the accelerator. He jerked the wheel over just in time to avoid a truck that was proceeding through the intersection. Behind him, he heard the shrill screech of a police whistle. His heart went into his boots. Every officer on the Whiteside Force knew the old airport car by sight. Most of them knew Rick, too. But he couldn't stop now. Gus would just have to explain it away if he could. There was no time to worry about that now. The sedan was streaking through the open country, and he had to push the pedal to the floor to keep up. The gray car had led the way to a secondary road that headed north along the shore. The highway was deserted as the two cars sped away from Whiteside into wooded country. Rick worried. Following the gray car had been a senseless thing to do when he stopped to think about it. What could he hope to do? There was nothing illegal about the bearded man's buying up all the tubes in sight. In spite of his realization that he could do nothing, he never slowed his pursuit of the other car. Instead, it was the gray sedan that brought the chase to an unexpected close. The chase led into a densely wooded section far from the nearest house. They roared past the solitary figure of a hiker, and the road stretched ahead of them, completely deserted. Then, with a suddenness that caught Rick by surprise, the gray sedan screamed to a stop, turning so that it blocked the road. <laughs>